Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Good to see you here this morning. Delighted again that you've chosen to worship with us. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm 139. will be our teaching text for this morning, Psalm 139. We're going to begin in verse 23 and read verse 24 in just a few moments. We are starting a brand new series today. Anybody get excited about the new newness of series? I know for me, uh, I hope it's not just me. Did anybody get excited about the newness of series? All right, cool. So um, for me, uh, I was really, really blessed with God's Word and His, teach, His, His teaching that He gave to us as a community in um, the last month, the month of August. And uh, I just feel like it's going to cascade in momentum into this month. And uh, we're starting this series called Meeting Places. And, uh, you know, as the Church of Jesus Christ, we are the dwelling place of God. We are the temple of His Holy Spirit. And so uh, if you have a, a Bible, Psalm 139, or maybe you want to take out a phone real quick, they'll put the QR code if you want to follow along. I do want you to know that that, available, that option is available uh, for you to go back and to study and, and certainly have today. If you go to a connect group, you probably want to be able to see or access the, the sermon card, uh, or you can do so in version as well, but they'll leave it up there just a moment if you want to access the passage uh, that we're going to uh, study this morning. So Psalm 139. And uh, let's begin in verse 23. Let's throw that up on there on the screen. Psalm 139. He said, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Watch this. See if there is, this is so powerful, any offensive way in me. And the psalmist prays, Lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me in the way everlasting. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I thank you for the time that we have together. And Lord, we pray for this month, God, that it would be a place indeed where we would seek after your heart, Lord, for the the power and the presence of God to come and to meet with us and to change us, to transform us, Lord, to convict us, to challenge us, just not to leave us the same way you found us. Lord, we just commit and ask that you, by your Spirit, would sanctify the moments we have together. And Lord, that in this time, God, we would see Jesus clearly and know that, Lord, your purpose for our lives shall prevail as we commit our way unto the Lord. You said you will see to it. And so, God, we just, from the outset of this month, declare to you, Lord, that we want fresh, holy, frequent encounters with your son, Jesus, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. And everybody said... All right, so we're starting a new series today based on that theme, that theme that we just read in Psalm 139. It's the idea of altars. This really, honestly, is just going to be a four-week series on revival. We're calling it meeting places, places in which God meets with His people. And it's amazing when you track kind of the redemptive story of God through the Old Testament of how God chooses to meet through Altars, we're going to talk extensively about today. And then it progresses from altars to becoming the tabernacle in the wilderness, or what we would call the tabernacle of meeting or the tent of meeting that Moses was responsible for. And that moves on into what we call the time of the union, the unified nation. And when this takes place, of course, Solomon builds 
uh, the temple, David is unable to because of the blood on his hands, and God meets in the temple. And then now, the progression in the New Testament through the body of Jesus, we now are the body of Christ. And so we're going to talk all month long about revival, about God's meeting places. You know, the kingdom of God, church, is so much larger than any one church, right? I mean, the body of Christ is huge around the world. Jesus is doing beautiful things. You know, I often tell people, listen, when you try to claim that your church is the only church, that's like sitting in the bathtub and yelling out through your house, hey, I'm in the Pacific Ocean. This is awesome. You know, this is amazing, right? Like the body of Christ is monstrous. It is unbelievably large. God is doing remarkable things around the world. And I have had as I think you have, a really deep sense that we as a church, we are moving into what I like to call a united moment. We're moving into a, a season where God is, is wanting to do something unique. And so over the last few weeks, I've been studying uh, extensively, actually, the First Great Awakening. Now, I don't know if you know any much about the First Great Awakening that took place here in our nation that ultimately would spread the globe. But one of the one of the key figures in the the, the first in, in what we call the first great awakening was a preacher, a pastor by the name of Charles Finney. And I don't know if you know Charles Finney or not. You don't know him. I'll just give you a little bit of backdrop. He was a man who ministered in upstate New York, and he was in a village where they said, if you study it, that the village he lived in was a portal into the presence of God. People from the entire United States would walk into the village and would under overwhelmingly be just under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. This whole village was a place in which God would meet with His people. And you could feel. It wasn't, wasn't something you had to imagine or conjure up. You could feel God's presence there. Now, here's what's amazing. There was a contemporary of Finney or a peer of Finney by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Now, this one, we do know this name. He's the one who... Uh, was you know very famous for preaching the sermon "Sinner in the Hands of an Angry God." What I find so amazing about uh, Jonathan Edwards and the ministry that God used him, yes, there was mass conversions. But what was so amazing is that Jonathan Edwards was a strong, serious Calvinist. A a serious Calvinist experiences total revival. Next guy comes onto the scene, Charles Finney. Charles Finney was a total Arminian. I'm talking as opposed as a person can be to Calvinism and what? Experiences total revival. There's a principle here. Here's the principle. What we think is most important thing theologically is not the most important thing to God when he decides to visit his people. What we as his people think is theologically really, really important is not really that important to him. You say, well, what, what can we learn from Finney? Well, Finney... He was really known in a city upstate New York called Rochester, New York. And in Rochester, New York, they experienced a move of God in 1830 and 1831 that was unparalleled. Just absolutely breathtaking when you read about it. So let me give you a quick story. Finney had been in New York City ministering, and, and God was blessing his ministry with wonderful revival. And it was time for transition, and so he doesn't know what to do next. So he gets in New York City, his advisors around him one night, and they start praying. And the moment they get together, he gets word from upstate New York, Rochester, where they say, Finney, would you come please and help us? We have no pastor. The advisors look at Finney and they say, absolutely not. That's not strategic. That's a no-name no place on the map. You need to go to Philadelphia. You need to stay here in New York City. Do not go to Rochester. Well, 
guess what happens? Finney goes to sleep that night. The Spirit of God wakes him up. He can't he can't sleep. He spends a night in prayer and fasting, and he gets this sense late at night where the Holy Spirit speaks to him and says, you should go to Rochester. Y'all, he shows up the next day in Rochester, New York, and that begins a six-month period where he preaches 98 sermons and 100,000 people give their life to Christ in six months. Now, now, I, 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 I didn't think that would hit like I wanted it to hit, okay? I, I tried to think driving into church this morning. What would happen if a hundred thousand people in Cherokee County came to know Jesus in a six-month period? So we're only at 320,000 people in this county, and we're the fastest-growing county in Metro Atlanta. Six months, a hundred thousand people. Just trying to think. But it's not just a hundred thousand conversions. Finney talks about the individual stories, which are fascinating to me. I, I, I studied this before, but I, I basically, honestly, missed the reality that Finney was basically seeming to move in words of knowledge, words of wisdom, and prophetic understanding. So essentially what Finney did for about six months is he would meet people one-on-one and he would read their mail. And, he, and the thing that history records is he'd discern almost every person's heart when he walked in the room. He just had to sermon instantly where their heart was at. Whether they were playing the fiddle, whether they were playing religious games, where was their heart with God? And one of the things I learned is that Finney had two prayer partners with him. Two prayer partners, one by the name of Abel Clary, A-B-E-L, and then another guy named Daniel Nash. Now these two men were living in total obscurity, hardly known by history, but oh, so very powerful. So if you were to travel to Rochester, New York today, you would see Daniel Nash's grave. And you know what it says on the gravestone? It literally says, laborer with Finney, comma, mighty in prayer. And this was a man, folks, if you study history, just basically received from the Spirit of God a gift of intercession where this spirit of prayer comes on his life. And he had this spirit of intercession where you could, you could read the accounts of the effectiveness of their prayer and they transformed their city. And Abel and Daniel, they, the, the history records, would be on their faces groaning. They said that, again, this could be hyperbole, but the, the accounts are that you hear them pretty much morning and night from about a half mile away with primal cries. I mean, imagine just walking through the woods and you hear, it's like, what, is that a dead, is that a dying animal? Is that a wounded animal? And these men are weeping and groaning before God. And they're in just a travail of prayer for spiritual breakthrough. Now, here's what's amazing. He died right at the end of, of the season of Rochester for Finney, and Finney never ministered in the same power again. Never. This was a place where the Word of God and intercession finally came together. This is a place where God's declared truth married with a true spirit of intercession, probably unlike any in history. You know, this stuff messes me up when I read it. I get under so much... I have been reading and I've been under so much conviction reading these stories about how lightly I take preaching. I get so so much conviction how casual Americans are when they come to church as it relates to expecting God to move in their heart. Just so casual. Just so lazy in prayer. So lazy in worship. 
so lazy in intercession. And so I've been just kind of experiencing this joyful, it's not a beatdown, it's a joyful conviction. It's kind of like a wake up. So you say, Craig, why are you sharing this? Well, I'm sharing this because we need to be reminded when we live in a desert that there is such thing as rain. We, we need to be reminded. We, we must know that what we see in Woodstock is not all that God can do. We have to understand that I can let my... Listen, I got problems just like you, right? So I, in my life right now, in season of life, got just as many problems as anybody else got problems. But if I let my problems dictate, listen, the reality of what God can do or not do in my world, my world is going to be small until the day I die. We must have our hearts stirred up again. We must... Understand God wants to meet with us. That God is God, God is still the God of the Bible, whether or not we're experiencing what we see in the Bible. And so I want to encourage you, if you haven't been seeking God or you haven't been asking God what's possible, just open up your mind. Just for the next few weeks, open up your heart. So let's talk today about building the altar of prayer. Now, altars are meeting places with God. Now, I have a challenge. You say, Craig, what's the challenge? Now, how many of you in this room, you just have a deep, solid, biblical knowledge of altar? You're just like, good, I'm good, Pastor Craig. No need for conversation on any altars. Like, All right, I didn't think so, right? So I have a job. I want to, for the next few moments, share a brief theology of what an altar is and why it's spiritually significant. Then I want to shift and talk about the human heart and what it is and why the human heart must become an altar for God. And by the way, the word heart in Scripture has over a thousand reference points in the Bible. So to clarify a thousand reference points into a few key points and then build a biblical theology of altars and then call you to repent at the end is quite a task. So if you don't mind, I'm going to get going, right? This is today. Let's discuss, first of all, a theology of altars. What are they? So you understand that when God first created mankind or the human race, we had direct access to God. There was no need for mediation. There was no need for sacrifices. There was no need for a priest. I've often, in my own time, just kind of sat with that for a minute. Imagine God comes to you in the cool of your day, and he asks you, hey man, how'd your day go? Oh, good God, thanks. Thanks for asking. And then you two just got up and held hands and walked. You, You just went for a walk with God. This is amazing. I read texts like this in Genesis and my mind just can't comprehend it. It just moves on to the next chapter. He came up to Adam in the afternoon cool air and talked to him. Had a conversation with him. No mediation needed. No priest needed. He walked with them. But the Bible says very quickly they sinned. And what happens when they sin? They're banished from Eden. Which means they no longer have direct access to the presence of God. And so, in some sense, they lived in God's world, but they lived in a God-forsaken world. And now their hearts are longing for the transcendent. Now their hearts are longing for something beautiful. Now, because of God's great love for us, He came after us. And when God would encounter people throughout the Old Testament, they would mark it. So they had a vision. It was a pr- kind of a prophetic vision to record these moments and to make sure that these events would be remembered for future generations. Theologians call this, it's a beautiful phrase, I want to give it to you today. The theologians call this memorializing, next slide, theophany. Memorializing theophany. I think it's a beautiful phrase. Hey, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just memorializing a theophany. Theophany is a God encounter, and we memorialize that theophany. So anytime would God show up, they would build a pile of stones. They would do anything they can to build up an altar. In other words, to say, this is a place. And they wanted the world to know, listen, 
that God, Yahweh, came near. I want everybody to know this is a place where he met with us. Now, I wish I had a time to show you throughout the Bible just kind of a map of all the places in Scripture where altars are built on the land. But essentially what the children of Israel were doing is they were trying to put a flag into the ground and say, though this place looks normal, it is anything but normal. It was a portal into the presence of God. This right here was something sacred. This was holy ground. You say, Craig, that's crazy. You know, we still do this today. Are there places in your life and places in your story where you can say, you know what, I met with God here. I've taken my own family up to Chattanooga. We've gone into what is now the fellowship hall, but at that time was the sanctuary. And we've been in that sanctuary, and I've taken my son, I've taken my two daughters, and I said, you know what, listen, son, right here on the right side, I remember it like it was yesterday, February 10th, 2002. The living God met me in those fibers. That's the place of the carpet. And, Gre- and, and John Knox, I'm showing you this, why? Because I want there to come a day where you meet with the living God and you open up a place and you go show your grand, my kids or your kids and my grandkids the place that, hey, hey, this is where I met with God. These are what altars are for. They are memorializing theophanies. That's the purpose. But then the second thing altars were designed to do was to offer sacrifice, to offer sacrifice. Because we couldn't come directly into God's presence because of our sin, sacrifices were required for sin and for cleansing so that sinners could come into the presence of a holy God. So, so that's, the, that's the role that altars play. Now watch this, church. Altars, first of all, were built among the land. Then the altar would move to the tabernacle. This is fascinating. Then the altar would move to the temple. Now, where do we think the altar is? So, so it was a place of sacrifice for sin, but it was also a place for an altar or a sacrifice of praise. So sometimes if you were just really grateful for what God did, what you would do is you would come to God in the Old Testament and you would offer him a free will offering and you just say, thank you, God. I just want to bless your name. So altar was a place of cleansing and altar was a place of adoration. So, so who lived this way, Pastor Craig? Like who did this? Who was it that wanted to memorialize these theophanies? <clears throat> well, I'm glad you asked. If you go through the Bible, you see it was a central theme of the Bible. All of God's people wanted to memorialize Theophilies. Let me, uh, Theophanies. Let me show you just a quick slide of the memorialization of Theophanies. Next slide. Just watch with this. Altars were built by Noah. Noah in Genesis 8.20. Altars were built by Abraham. Altars were built by Isaac. Altars were built by Jacob. Moses built altars. Balaam built an altar. Joshua built multiple altars. Reubenites and Gadites built an altar. Gideon builds an altar before God. Samuel builds an altar before God. Saul uh, uh, builds altars before God. David ultimately, you know, God, the, the king of Israel, Elijah builds altars. Now, here's the challenge that the, the nation of Israel faced. Are you ready? The challenge was that the altars and of sacrifice and thanksgiving were not just ways they interacted with their God. Meaning the pagan nations had their own gods and their own sacrifices and their own altars. So in some case, it became a challenge in the ancient Near Eastern world about whose God got to claim this place. Whose stack of rocks got to be in this one locale? Whose God was really sovereign? And so one of the large challenges of Israel is that their heart began to be drawn after these foreign gods and they began to sacrifice to them. Now, some of the ancient practices of pagans were a real temptation for Israel, right? Uh, The biggest one was sexual immorality. So most of the pagan altars were orgiistic. 
So they were full of orgies. That's how you worship to the God or offer to the God. All kinds of debauchery, right? And so Israel's there chopping up dead animals, watching how the pagans were doing it, and it looks a whole lot more fun doing that kind of altar building than doing this kind of altar building. And so their hearts are like, whoa, what's going on? I, I, I want to sacrifice to that kind of God. I don't want to sacrifice chopping up animals. This is not what I want to do. And so what happens is their hearts would go after other gods. Their hearts would go after other idols. And this, listen, becomes the dominant theme of the greatest challenge the children of Israel ever face. It's pagan altars and godly altars. It's idolatry and it's true worship. Now, the challenge wasn't just that there were actual physical places for altars. These physical places crept into their hearts And so they began to establish not external idols. The children of Israel began to internally establish idols. And this is what God cared about. God cared really about the internal idols. So you get to passages like this beautiful passage in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 14 verse 3. Amazing passage. Son of man, these men have set up idols where? Not out on the land. They've set them in their hearts and they put stumbling blocks, God said, before their faces... Hey, son of man, should I let them even inquire of me? Should I even let them talk to me? These idols in their hearts and these stumbling blocks before their faces. This is a powerful moment in the nation of Israel. God says, I'm looking at your heart and in your heart that belongs to me, you set up an idol in your heart and you come and seek me, but you do so with idols in your heart. So here is the spiritual principle. Next slide. Idols of the heart become altars of the heart. Idols of the heart become altars of the heart. They become these places where we sacrifice and we praise other things. One of the most devastating accounts of this is in Ezekiel chapter 8, 9, and 10. Go go and read it when when you can. God is just just fascinating because God is just grieved at how Israel has turned his temple into a place of every other idol of the pagan nations around them. So I want to simplify this so you can get a takeaway, okay? So this becomes memorable for you. So this is the memorable kind of underway or way to understand this clear truth. I'll put it this way. Are you ready? Our heart desire plus sacrifice and offering towards that desire equals our worship. So our heart wants something. And then we sacrifice whatever we need to towards what we want. And that's what it means to worship. That's what it means to really give ourselves. So please hear me. Everybody on earth worships. I want you to hear me. You do not get a choice about whether you worship or not. The only choice you get is what you worship. That's your only determining volition. No one gets to choose whether they want to worship or not. We all are worshipers, whether you are a believer or not, because you are creating the Imago Dei, and it's how God has made the human existence. We are worshipers, but because all of us have something that our heart wants, we start getting a vision in front of our eyes of what we want, and then we start sacrificing for that want, and the Bible calls that worship. That's worship. So the children of Israel, they have this clear temptation. Their hearts go after God's and they sacrifice and they offer themselves to God. And God says, hey, why do you worship these false gods? So so we get to Jeremiah 2, we see this amazing account. Now, Jeremiah was an exilic prophet. Exilic means that 
He, he ministered in the exile. So Babylon is about to come take the, the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah into Babylonian captivity. And so Jeremiah prophesies. This is what he says, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11 and 13. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yeah, they're not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two sins. Watch this. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own wells, their own cisterns, and their cisterns cannot hold water. Folks, leave that up there just a moment. What a challenge. This ultimately destroys God's people. They forsake the living water and they build their own cisterns. And the nation of Israel would inevitably now be in exile because of it. Now, the good news of the gospel is that because of Jesus, okay, here's the good news, we now have unlimited direct access to the presence of God. And we don't have to fall into these cycles of idolatry anymore. We don't have to let our hearts run after these idols anymore. And this is amazing. Can I hear an amen? Now, we can see that through our great God and through the sacrifice of Christ, we can now enter into that freedom and confidence because of what Christ has done for us. You know what that means for you and I? That you and I have unlimited access to God's presence. And it's mediated not by a priest, it's mediated by Jesus. It's not mediated by an animal sacrifice, it's mediated by the Son of God. And this means that our whole lives can now be memorials and our whole lives can be be theophanies and encounters with God wherever we go. You can encounter a God in a Toyota Tacoma. You can encounter a God in a building on a Friday night in all night prayer. You can encounter God on a zip line in Puerto Rico. You can encounter God in any moment at any place in your life. You can memorialize a theophany. This is the reality. We have access to God. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9. Through 18. Let's read through this passage together. Next slide. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9 through 18. Yes, for by one sacrifice he's made perfect forever. This is Jesus. Those who are being made holy. For the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I'm going to put my laws in their hearts. I'm going to write them on their minds. And then he adds, watch this, their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. And watch this, where they have been forgiven, he says, verse 18, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. You know what that means, church? That because of what Jesus has done, your heart and your life and your walk with God can now be one with intimacy and freedom. It is amazing to think about what Jesus has accomplished. Now here's what's crazy. Many Christians get so excited about their relationship with the new covenant and their personal relationship with him, that they basically leave any connection behind with the old covenant. They say, oh, there's no need for it. But the biblical writers don't do that. They don't do that at all. Why? Because the shadows and the types of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. But watch this. The call still remains the same. Can I prove it to you? 1 Peter chapter 2 in the New Testament the altars of the Old Testament sacrifice don't go away. They become altars of New Testament prayer, praise, and encounter. 
1 Peter chapter 2. Read with me this text. 1 Peter chapter 2, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Watch this, to be a holy priesthood. And watch the call of the Old Testament. It doesn't change. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the in the Old Covenant, there was a, a special class of people called the priests who offered sacrifices. But in the New Testament or New Covenant, you are a priest and you get to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. That means in your heart, you have the ability to bless God, to honor God, and to minister to God. You have that ability. What a privilege, friends. Look at me. Let's, let's lock eyes for a minute. Did you know you're important? Did you know how important you are? You are a priest of the Most High God. And you have the ability this morning to offer sacrifices to Him that bless His heart. Spiritual sacrifices. That's why it says in Hebrews 13, 15, and 16, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, that openly, not with our hands in our pocket and our mouths closed. That's not what he says to do in worship. Okay? He doesn't say, keep your hands in your pocket and your mouth closed and say, oh, I'm worshiping God with my, my head. No, no, no. That's not what he's saying. He said, there's a command here. You let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips that openly, not secretly, that openly profess his name. Watch this. And do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with those sacrifices, God is pleased. That means that we have the chance to make our hearts altars for the presence of God. The altar is not out there anymore. The altar is in here. Our hearts worship Him and then we sacrifice and we bless His name and it rises to God as a fragrant aroma in the very nostrils of God Almighty. So we good on altars now? Everybody good on altars? I've laid the biblical theology for altar. Now let me shift and let me talk about your heart. Let's talk now about that thing in your chest, your heart. Now, the heart has the idea of being the center of one's being, okay? It's used a thousand times in the, the Bible. And people say, you read any theologian or pastor, they, they say all kinds of different words are used to describe the heart. I want to define the heart this way for us this morning. The heart is the center of your being. The heart's the center of your being. Look at how Dallas, Dallas Willard puts it. Dallas Willard, fabulous author, he said, life must be organized by the heart if it's to be organized at all. It can be pulled together only from the inside. Life can only be pulled together from the inside. This is the function of the heart, spirit or will. The, the function of the heart is to organize your life as a whole and not indeed organize it around, notice this, uh, to organize it around God. A great part of the disaster of contemporary life lies in the fact that it is organized around human feelings, not around God. What a phrase, y'all. A great part of the disaster of the contemporary life is the fact that people organize their lives around their feelings and not God. So if the number one thing God wants is our hearts, the Bible should speak to the condition of our heart. Now, how many of you in this room, you've ever been to the doctor? I hope at some point you've been. 
Okay, if you have it, you might want to check that out. Okay, when you go to the doctor and you sit down in the doctor's office, whether you're going for a physical or you're going for a checkup, the first thing, these pink ones are not mine, they're MK's, so just make sure you, MK, I appreciate you. What's the first thing that the doctor, this is a true stethoscope. You, you can imagine how, how much I had to take this from my kids yesterday, MK, at my house, okay? You can imagine, okay? So what happens is you get inside the doctor's office, right? And the first thing they do is they want to check your vitals. No matter what you do, they say, hey, we're going to check your vitals. And then the doc will put a stethoscope or the nurse will and, and she'll, or he'll say, hey, sit up on the table there and get real still. All right, here's what you do. Just take off the, you got two shirts on? All right, go unbutton that first shirt. All right, so here's what I'm going to do. I want you to get real still. You ready? And I just want for the next few moments, let me just check your heart. Right? Let me just, let me, all right, I'm going to do it on the back. Let me check your lungs, but then also I want to check your heart. And listen, friends, if something is wrong with your heart, nothing else in that doctor's appointment matters. Everything stops. They don't give a rip what you're saying you're sick about. They don't care what's what. From that point on, it's we must suspend your activities and tend to your heart. By the way, quick point here. Did you know that the stethoscope was invented by a Christian man? You know why he invented it? Because he wanted to find a way to listen to the with modesty to a woman without putting his ear on her chest. So, which is just another way how Christians advance te- technology, bless God. <laughs> so here's what the Bible says about the heart. Human beings without God have wicked hearts. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, we don't like to talk about this in our culture today, right? We would try to figure out what's wrong with the world by putting our finger on all of these symptoms, right? How many people, you hear people say, oh, what the wickedness in the world is hegemonic power. The wickedness in the world is just politicians that are unjust. The wickedness in the world is just sexual immorality. The wickedness in the world is pornography and its effects. And all we're doing is we're just pointing to the symptoms, not the root. What we need in American culture, other than pastors and Christians, we need some political leaders to stand up with the courage to say, you want to know what's wrong with America? Wicked hearts. Okay? That's what's wrong with culture. People have wicked hearts. And people are evil sometimes. Their hearts are set on evil. They want evil in their hearts. And we we live in a world, listen, where no one's allowed to correctly diagnose the fundamental problem. And it's why we're so anemic to try to change or repair the world without the power of God. Because all of our efforts are external. All of our efforts are external in our image management. And it never works. Listen, friend, you don't need better habits. People say, I need better habits. You don't need better habits. You need a new heart. You need to be changed from the inside out. Romans 1 puts it like this. It says, for although they knew God as God, they neither glorified Him nor thank, give thanks to God. Watch this. For their foolish hearts were darkened. What a phrase. Their foolish hearts were darkened. You know what the proverb says? It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool does not say in his mind. 
the fool says in his heart. This is the number one principle of apologetics, by the way. There is enough evidence to believe in God if you want the evidence. But the heart says, I don't want the evidence. I want to be my own God. So all atheism, all agnosticism is never head problems. They're all heart problems. It's all heart problems. We say in our heart, I like to live my life. And we can have wicked hearts. But not only wicked hearts, we can have divided hearts. Divided hearts. So in 1 Kings chapter 18, there is this scene where Elijah is confronting the prophets of Baal. And it's a powerful scene, right? It's kind of one of the Old Testament classics. You remember the Mount Carmel? And Elijah says to God's people, he says, hey, um, who are you with here? You got the prophets of Baal and the prophets of God. And he looks at him and he says, who are you with here? He says, watch this question, how long will you waver between two opinions? He said, if Baal is God, then serve Baal. But if Yahweh is God, serve God. Make up your mind. Why? Because we can be divided in our hearts. We can not only have wicked hearts, we can be divided in our hearts. You ever dated dated someone who was not quite over the last person? Awkward. Population two. Actually, three. (laughs) Because they're not over the last person, right? It's going pretty well, right? Going pretty well. A couple months into it, but then you ask him, like, hey, man, why were you you talking to him? Ah, no, it's nothing, man. No good reason. I just... We just kind of friends. We, he just kind of reached out to me, DM me, slid into my DMs. No big, no big deal. And then you look at that person, you're like, sister, are we good? Are we not? Like, are we here? Are we a thing? Are we not a thing? Like, I can't live with your divided heart. Why do we think God can live with divided hearts then? I can't live with your divided heart. And sometimes we're like this with God. Like, we're divided with our affections for Him, and then we got our affections on other things, and we can feel torn. This is why Psalm 86 says, Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Watch this. Give me an undivided heart that I may glorify your name. God wants our hearts more than anything else, but sometimes we can harden our hearts. So I'm, I'm tracking with you. You tracking with me? We've got, first of all, the wicked heart. We've gone to the divided heart. Now, thirdly, we've got the hardened hearts. Hardened hearts. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3 verse 11 says this, Today, everybody say today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Or God says, I will declare you will never enter my rest. You're never going to enter my rest with a hardened heart. Did you know it's possible for the Holy Spirit to be speaking to us and to be convicting us and to invite us and we just harden our hearts against God? And all He wants to do is to lead us into our future. All He wants to do for you today, friend, is to lead you into your inheritance and what happens is we resist it and we harden our hearts. Can I tell you, church, how many people in our culture ache to hear the voice of God? They ache so badly to hear the presence of God and do you know what a tragedy it is that when when the Holy Holy Spirit finally speaks to them, they say, nah, I'm good. And they harden their hearts. So you know what the writer says of Hebrews? If you hear his voice today, don't harden your heart. But here's the fourth heart. We must also guard from an unbelieving heart. We have wicked hearts, divided hearts. We have hardened hearts. But then we have unbelieving hearts. Look at Hebrews 3.12, next verse. See to it, brothers, sisters, that none of you has a sinful unbelieving heart 
that turns away from the living God. Vulnerable moment. Vulnerable moment. It is a particular sad season of my life right now because so many of my peers and so many of my ministry peers and pastors are just turning away from God in unbelief. Even people that I went to school with, even people that 15 years ago were in the university setting with me. And it's so tragic to watch because something has gotten between them and God and they just give up on faith. So there's this terrible scene where Jesus and Peter are chatting. Now, listen, anytime Jesus comes to you and wants to chat, you usually think, oh, it's because he wants to affirm me and he wants to speak to my identity and he wants to build me up. But I pray this scene never happens in my life. Satan uh, comes to Jesus first and then Jesus comes to Peter and Jesus says to Peter, he says, Peter, Satan came up to me the other day and he asked to sift your life like wheat. Comma. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. You know what the word sift means? This is fascinating. In Greek, it means eclipse. You know what that means? That word sift carries the idea, the Greek word, of where the moon for a moment blocks out the sun. Something gets between you and God. And we had one a few years back. My wife and I, we were, our kids, we went up to our parents' house in Tennessee, and it was in the place of the total eclipse, right in the middle of the day. Quite remarkable, right? All of the, all of the animals, I mean, all of the birds started chirping. All of the, I mean, it was right in the middle of the day, 1 o'clock, and all of the crickets started going crazy. And listen, listen to me, watch this. We know that the sun is so much larger than the moon. Did you know the moon is the size of Australia? And the sun is one million times bigger than the moon. But from our tiny little vantage point in Sweetwater, Tennessee, it looked for a little bit like the sun was blocked out by something else. It's totally gone. And that's why in other cultures, no need to judge them. That's why they literally lost their minds during eclipses. And they said the heavens are falling down. There's a sign from heaven. It's the end. And they thought, how large does something have to be to block out the sun? But let me tell you something. If you just just got up out of Sweetwater, Tennessee, if you just came up off of the planet for a moment and got an objective perspective, you would see that the sun is still fine. But from that little vantage point for a moment, it looks like it's gone. This is what the enemy does with people. He gives them an eclipse. And it's so, so, we know the son of Jesus is doing just fine by himself. And his light is shining on anyone and everybody. But from their little vantage point, because they listened to one little podcast and now everything they heard in the first 28 years of their life is untrue because of that podcast we know it is nonsense it is nonsense it is an unbelieving heart and it is the number one tactic of the enemy to lead them in a sinful wrong perspective sometimes it's a theological problem sometimes it's a man a an issue with a, a relationship and it gets between you and God and you lose your faith and it's impossible to have an unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So here's the point I'm trying to make. What God is after again and again, church, is your heart. God wants your heart. Y'all, revival is birthed in here, not out there. Revival is birthed in here. And the first altar you see is the altar of the heart. Now, we can often look at the children of Israel and go, man, oh gosh, man, these Bronze Age myths. Like, we would never worship something other than God. Like, what are these people doing, like establishing altars and sacrificing to them? 
And yet, folks, we just go outside to Atlanta on this Labor Day weekend, and we are one of the literally center earth where altars are established for the pagan hearts. They're everywhere. Next slide, power, money, ambition, beauty, love, approval. And, and we think external things. Think about uh, in Atlanta, the phoenix. People go on Instagram, they take pictures in front of the phoenix. Think about people in um, New York City, they go in front of Wall Street or the bull and they take pictures in front of Wall Street and the bull. Did you know what sociologists call those, by the way? Sociologists call those condensed symbols. And what a condensed symbol means, it, it means that an, uh, it's a picture that represents an entire ecosystem of meaning and significance and belonging. So my heart says, okay, listen, my heart says more, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to sacrifice and offer myself for that vision. That will be my worship. Can I tell you, I know of no greater condensed symbol in America than the rainbow flag. It's a condensed symbol of equality and justice and inclusion and human rights. And it's not just a flag in the wind, folks. So when people see it, what they do is they identify with it. Those who do identify with it, they identify with it. And they say, that's what my heart wants. And so I'm going to offer myself to it. And this happens and, and they'll fight for it because it's their worship. And this is what happens into almost every sphere of American life. Many of us think, well, we would never sacrifice for the wrong thing. You know, I was thinking about this week, we look at the worst sacrifice of the Old Testament. You remember where the Israelites sacrificed their babies in the fires of Molech? So they got their babies and killed their babies. They burned up their babies for Molech because they wanted his blessing. And we look at that and we say, how barbaric, man. What are the children of Israel thinking? But every day in America... People sacrifice their children on the altars of their ambition, which is their God called their career, and they miss their entire kids' childhoods, just destroying their kids and their own heart through the fires of Molech. We do the exact same thing in America today as the children of Israel did. But isn't it interesting? Heart vision plus offering of the self equals worship. This is how Arthur Willis puts it. I'm almost finished. He says, next slide, when a relationship with a friend or a loved one is causing your spiritual life to wane, we may suspect that one's become an idol. When we're seeking first our business interests and vainly supposing that God will add to us the things of his kingdom, when in fact we're more concerned and anxious about mere material prosperity than spiritual prosperity, we should examine ourselves as to whether we're joined to idols. When our homes and families become the be-all and end-all and we're prepared to make a spiritual compromise to please them, when some pastime or recreational interest is our absorbing passion, when we're more concerned about when our, when our, mind, our, our outward appearance than the state of our hearts, when our minds are perpetually full of some material possession and some human ambition, are we not as guilty of idolatry as any Israelite who bowed their knee to Baal? And see, that's an interesting concept to us because we don't think of idolatry like that. We just think of what we love, don't we? We say, oh, that's, this is the things I love for my family. This is, what we, we, this is what we're about. So Yancey, Philip Yancey says this. Next slide. He says, when God rebuked the Israelites for their idolatry, he was not condemning their urge to worship. Nor did he disapprove of the more immediate urges that pushed them towards idols. He didn't disapprove of their desire for fertility or good weather or military success. Rather, he condemned them for seeking those things from senseless hunks of wood and iron instead of from God himself. That's what he condemned. 
So the good news of the gospel is not that we have to try and resuscitate our own hearts this morning. The good news of the gospel is I'm not telling you that you've got to heal yourself. It's that God gives us a new heart. And I want to be very clear here. A lot of times people think we exchange one idolatry for another. So we switch godless idolatry for the religious idolatry. No, no. Jesus seemed to be the most angry, not with sinners, but with the self-righteous people around him. Jesus welcomed perfume on his feet paid for by prostitution and condemned the self-righteous Pharisees around him in the same moment. So Jesus would say, on the outside you look great, man, but in, 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 in inwardly, you're full of dead man's bones. You know what Jesus said to the Pharisees? He said, you worship me with your lips, but your... You worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. So it's possible to keep God at a distance through self-righteousness. So I'm not here to advocate today, do more for God, try harder, be a better person. Let this be a month of you pursuing and, and doing all that you can do. No, no, stop being idolater. You don't need to be an idolater. That's not my point here. My point is God loves you and he wants your heart for himself out of a jealous affection and passion for you. So today's call is not a moralistic call. This is a passionate call for the love of your heart. And Here's how it changes. First of all, we got to have a repentant heart. We got to have an absolute repentant heart. We see this in David. You know, the thing that made David so remarkable, and whoever's playing keys, you can come. Who, what David, I guess, was so fascinating to me is he's called a man after God's own what? Heart. And this is a guy with so much blood on his hands that God says, I appreciate your heart, David, but you can't build the temple. Okay, so he's the person literally who murdered Uriah, committed adultery with Bathsheba, got prideful and numbered his troops, and all of those sins brought tremendous judgment, but he still called a man after God's own heart. Why? Jesus comes from the line of David. Did you know in heaven right now, Jesus is still proud to associate with David on earth? Still proud. Because... Being a man after God's own heart is not about our own morality. Being a man after God's own heart is about our desire and the tenderness of our heart to God. That's it. It's not about how many times we've messed up. It's about our tendency to say, God, I want to stay soft before you. I want my heart to be committed to you. And when David's called out for his sin, this is what he says, Psalm 51, 10 and 12. He says, listen, God, I'm asking you, Psalm 51, uh, verse 10 and 12. He says, I'm asking you, Lord God. Do we have that quickly? Quickly, Psalm 51. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me, watch this, from your presence or take the spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me what a willing spirit. So the first step of making our hearts an altar before God is we got to have a spirit of repentance. we got to have a repentant heart that leads us to a new heart. And God says, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you and you're going to be clean. I'm going to cleanse you from all your impurities and idols. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new spirit. I'm going to remove your heart of stone. I'm going to put in a heart of flesh. And y'all, it seems to me when you read the apostolic New Testament prayers, Ephesians, Colossians, every epistle, what God wants more than anything else is your heart. You remember that great prayer in Ephesians 3? My prayer is that Christ may dwell in your... No. Not your minds. He may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you be rooted and grounded in the love of God that basically has no boundaries may you be filled with all the fullness of 
God. How good is that? Paul's prayer is that your heart may increase its capacity to encounter the love of God. That you're filled with the fullness of God. Our call then this morning is to make our hearts an altar. Oh God, if you want my heart, God, I give you my whole heart. And that's the first key to revival. Atlanta puts so much emphasis on the externals. You got to look good, CrossFit. But now it's not CrossFit, it's Orange Theory. It's about heart rates. Get in the zone. Sophistication. It's all about external image management, reputation management, getting a check on Instagram, letting people know I'm an influencer on Instagram. Letting people know that I I have the ability to influence them. And all these things, they exist in our culture. Why? Because they're all external judgments. To try to externally manage our image. And God cares about the heart. How's your heart? Some of you, in your desire to present well, you look great on the outside. But you know your heart's not right with God. And if Jesus were to sit down with the stethoscope this morning and listen to your heart for a minute, shh, Greg, shh, 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 I just want to hear your heart for me. What would Jesus say? What would he say? I'll show you a quick story. As the story's played, I'm going to ask the band to join me on the team and I'm going to lead us in a prayer. If the Father were to reach down from heaven this morning with a stethoscope, would he say, can I hear my son's heart? Not my son Matt, but my son Jesus. Is your heart the heart of Jesus? Or is it, un- or is it divided? Wicked? Distracted? Listen, friend, the best way to perceive your future is to look at your altar because we become what we worship. So altering, A-L-T-E-R, is done by God. But altar building, A-L-T-A-R, is done by us. And the beauty of it is, yes, you are in your heart an altar, but guess what the sacrifice is? That's the altar. You know what the sacrifice is? You. You. Make your what? Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable for God, which is your reason why I service. And as you do that, listen, God takes the heart. That's where revival starts. That's the meeting place. The Bible says, a man's way seems right in his mind, but the Lord weighs the heart. If Jesus were to weigh your heart this morning, what would it weigh? What would it look like? Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.